it really is our privilege that you are here. We get to enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit together, look at the Word of God together. <clears throat> we are beginning a series uh, today on, on uh, who Jesus said he is. You know, there's a lot of people who have opinions on who Jesus is. And so we thought we would take a, a window of time and, and, and look into the scriptures to see who Jesus said he was. And it's really actually very fascinating. Three times in the book of Revelations, three times in the book of Revelations, Jesus referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha, Alpha actually uh, is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Alpha. And Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. In Revelations 22, 13, Jesus said this. He said, I am the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm the beginning, and I'm the end. And as I was looking at it, I've heard that, I've known that for a long time. Commentators could not overstate the enormity of this statement. What Jesus is saying here is so huge that actually our brains have a hard time wrapping around it. Because Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. He said, I am A and I am Z. And I am every letter in between. And I am every word in every language that is derived from all of those letters. He's the beginning and he's the end. And he holds absolutely everything together in between. Nothing exists between the beginning and the end is beyond his power and beyond his sovereignty. Every moment of your life, every breath that you breathe, every you don't even think about it, but your heart is pounding and pumping blood and he's aware of everything in your life. Nothing goes, reaches beyond his power. Not only you're living, but you're dying. He is the Lord of that. And if that doesn't blow your mind, think about even eternity. Trillions upon trillions of years of time in eternity is not outside of his context and outside of his sovereignty. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega and that is huge. And when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, he's also saying something else. He's saying, I'm the uncreated one. I can't even get this, but nothing has preceded him. He is before everything. And not only that, he's saying that I am the origin of everything. Everything that happens between Alpha and Omega actually finds its beginning in me. It's heavy stuff. So that's what it says. That's our theology that we get from this passage. What does that have to do with you and me? How does that affect the way we do life? Well, as humans, we are incredibly complex. And we are driven to understand ourselves. We have this desperate need to understand ourselves. I don't think animals have that same need. 
animals just exist and live true to who they or what they were created to be. Monkeys. Monkeys, they eat each other's lice and they monkey. They just monkey around. They're not out there trying to be you and me. They're just monkeys. Gazelles. Think about gazelles. They eat grass. That's what they do. And they frolic. And then they run away from lions. That's it. And once the lion has caught one of them, they stop right in their tracks and eat grass. (laughs) And frolic because there's no danger. And here comes the lions again and then they run. And then they stop and they eat grass. And then they frolic and then they run. That's it. And they're okay with that. Lions. Lions. They lick themselves. They groom themselves. And then they chase gazelles. And then they eat gazelles. And then they groom themselves again. And in between all of the chasing and eating, everybody goes back to either grooming or grazing. And they're very good at it. They just are comfortable in their own skin being lions and gazelles. But human beings aren't like that. You know this is true. You have to discover your identity. You have to discover your purpose. And you know that you're out of sorts until you find it. You feel uncomfortable in your skin until you lock onto actually why you're on the planet. The amazing thing is, is that some people actually live in a state of not knowing their entire lives. Others who were created to live with the power and the courage of a lion have been reduced to the timidity of a gazelle. And that doesn't fit either. The amazing thing is you know when you found it. You know when you found your stride. You know when you found your place. You know when you found it because you're free in it. So modern psychology says that If you want to understand yourself, basically you start by looking at yourself. But I'd like to suggest something different. I think that in order for you to understand yourself, you have to start by looking at something outside of yourself to see you. You need to start with the alpha. All of our thinking needs to start with the beginning, with the alpha. Your first orientation point needs to be the alpha because you're not the alpha. You're not the beginning. The truth of the matter is, in order to know yourself, you have to know him. You have to see him. Think about this for a second. See this pen? If I put the pen right here, it's really big. It actually is almost as big as the room. Truth of the matter is, you can see the pen better than I can see the pen. You have to move away from an object to be able to see the object. You you, you have to get away from the pen to see the pen. And in the same way, this is what you look like when all you see is yourself. There's no context. You don't understand yourself in context until you see yourself through an alpha point. And God is our alpha point. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. You have context for absolutely everything. In the beginning, God. And Jesus is God. 
And I submit to you that you only when you, you, you start with that alpha point will you ever really understand who you are and, and what, what you're on the planet for. Because the alpha created you with intention. You were created with purpose. And you were created in the image of alpha. You were created in the image of Jesus, in the image of God. And so if you want to know what you're supposed to look like, you see yourself through him. And he's not afraid of your uniqueness. He loves your uniqueness. He, he loves your weirdness. He loves your quirkiness. He loves the fact that, that you just look at life different than everybody else. And so we need to discover who we are and why we are. And in our quest for that, Richard Rohr suggests that, that we each need to do two dances in our lives. He talks about a survival dance, and then he talks about a sacred dance, but you have to do the survival dance before you can do the sacred dance. And the survival dance is really what you do in the first 30 or 40 years of your life. The survival dance is trying to figure out who you are. The survival dance is trying to figure out what makes you significant, what gives you validity. The survival dance is what, why, what makes people look up to you and what makes people respect you. Those are big questions. And we have these questions and we need to answer them. It's like an itch, you just gotta scratch it. Am I wanted? What makes me valuable? Am I actually worthy of love and connection? In the same way your children, your teenagers, they have questions. And questions that desperately need to be answered and they will work so hard to answer them. Am I smart? Am I pretty? Am I wearing the right clothes? Are these clothes cool? And do I belong? The problem is if you're still asking yourself those questions and you're 60, you're stuck. You're stuck in your survival dance. You've never moved on to your sacred dance. So your survival dance is, is, is getting a hold of your identity. It's who you are. Let me say this. Any identity that is not primarily informed by what God says about who you are is largely self-constructed, self-concocted, self-created. And the way we get a hold of our identity is we listen to what our parents say about us, and we listen to what our friends say about us, and we listen to what our culture says about us, and we filter everything through our own lens, and we say, well, this is who I must be. And some of us define ourselves by our deepest wounds. We define ourselves by our worst moments. And we add that to the mix. And then we, we, we mix in our likes and our dislikes. And if that isn't confusing enough, then as we grow older, we morph. Our identity changes. How many of you in here are exactly like you were 15 years ago? None of us. That's why I get really concerned when a ambitious 19-year-old tattoos his theory of life on his face. <laughs> yeah! Because you and I know in 15 years, he's not even going to believe that. And 
And this is something else that's really interesting, I think. We will use systems that give ourselves importance. We'll create them. Some of you, you're a non-contributing zero in your community. So you find a church and you get active in there and you're the worship leader. You're the Bible school, it's Bible study leader. Because it's safe. And you say, well, I can be somebody in there. And some of you, you know what? You, you're, you really don't have any, any great career passions or paths, but man, you're a good hockey player. And everybody on your men's hockey team thinks you're amazing. You create these systems in, in which we try to find our importance. And we have these small containers. And when you're looking for your identity outside of what God says about you, the containers can be incredibly small, but you'll use them to make yourself feel important. And when you put all of your eggs in those small containers and you defend that identity as the final identity, that's scary. That's scary. I, I, um, when, when I worked in a high school, my wife coached uh, high school basketball. And we, there were parents there that played, they were outstanding athletes in high school, and they are stuck in that, ide- that identity. And so they are still playing basketball all the time, but they, 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 they cannot let go of who they were in college because really what, they, what they're doing right now just seems boring in comparison to who they were in college. They never really brought their 19-year-old identity and, and, and matured and grew in it. And so God wants you to move from your survival dance to your sacred dance. And when you've hit your sacred dance, you know it. Your sacred dance is when, you've more, when you know yourself more fully. Your sacred dance is when, when, when you, you, you don't have to know everything about God. You, you, you leave some of that not knowing to him and you trust him. It's when you know God in your essence, not just in your brain. When you walk with him and you operate with him, it's interesting because the sacred dance is incredibly spacious. It moves you outside of your denomination because there isn't a denomination that was actually can contain all that God is in you and through you. You're a little bit country and you're a little bit rock and roll. You're a little weird. You're a little amazing. It's a spacious dance because you don't have to know everything because in your very core, you know that the one that knows everything utterly delights in you as his beloved. And so you leave the knowing to him. You take off what others want you to be and you put on an understanding of yourself that moves freely and authentically according to your own essence. And that person then enters into a divine dance with with the presence of God, with the Holy Spirit of God. And now you're not dancing by numbers. That's how when you first become a Christian, you just obey all the rules. And you stand when they say stand, you sit when they say sit, and you shout when they say shout. And you need a lot of props in that survival dance. You need a lot of rules and a lot of this and a lot of that. But you get into your sacred dance, and all of a sudden the numbers are gone on the floor because... They're not you. 
And you can move around the floor freely in your skin, delighting in everyone else's unique dance. They don't have to look like you. And you know you're growing when, 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 when there's still lots of mystery. You know you're stuck when your opinion trumps everyone else's opinion. All right. So God wants for you to know yourself, but he's the alpha point. Okay, he's the alpha. Now he's the omega. Jesus said, I'm the omega. And when he said that, he's basically saying, I'm the omega point for absolutely everything. Because everything moved towards him and towards his purpose and towards his glory. Everything. Paul said that in him, the promises of God are yes and amen. All your needs point to him and your every need being met is ultimate. Every need will ultimately be met in him. So how does that apply to us? That's, that's what it says. What does it mean? See, there's really only two approaches to God that you can take. Either you make God your end, your goal, and you make everything else your means, or you make God something else your means, and God just be, no, something else your end, and God just becomes a means to that. All right? There's two ways you look at God. And whatever approach you're taking, it drastically changes the motivation for worship. So, for instance, if prosperity is your end, and the Bible your means, and all the verses in the Bible that will promise you money, then you are using Jesus to get money. Really, you're not as interested in Jesus as you are money, so you, 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 God becomes your means and money your end. And you say, well, I don't do that. No, I, yeah, actually you do. It just doesn't look that drastic. See, omega points are the non-negotiables in your life. They're the things that if I didn't have them, I couldn't live. I, I, didn't, I don't want to exist. And some of our Omega points are people. If I, if I don't get married, I don't want to live. Some of our omega points are things. Some of our omega points are positions. I grew up in a, in a little Baptist church. And um, in the uh, 60s and in the 70s, we talked way more about heaven and hell than we do today. I actually don't know that I've heard a message in the last 10 years on heaven. But you, you couldn't. Actually, we talked more about hell than we did heaven, actually, now that I think of it. And, um, because that's where you go if you dance. And that's where you go. If you dance, you will go to hell. You will go right straight to hell. Okay? Um, and that's why you shouldn't have sex before you get married because it will look like dancing, and then you go to hell, okay? That's, like, no matter how you spin it, you will end up in hell, okay? And, and so I'm 12 years old, and I got to get baptized because I don't want to go to hell. I didn't, I'm, I got baptized when I was 10 if I could, but they wouldn't do it. And I stood up in front of the entire church, and they said, why do you want to get baptized? I said, so I can go to heaven. Because there's a verse somewhere that says that if you are baptized and you confess Christ, you go to heaven. And, you know, in their Baptist hearts, they were clapping. Because we didn't clap out loud. But they were clapping. They were celebrating. They were heart clapping. And, yes, a boy, Ed. a boy, you see? 
what I was doing? Do you see what I was doing? I was making heaven my end and Jesus my means. It's really subtle. How many people came to Christ because their life was a disaster and he promised he would heal them and so they came to him not realizing that they weren't as interested in him as they were getting rid of their pain. Spiritual gifts, especially power gifts. How many people started with their eyes on Jesus and saw how cool that is when you can prophesy and speak things and see things no one else can see. And then we use, we make the, 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 the gifts our end and we just use Jesus to get to them. Yeah, don't, don't look at me like you don't know. I'm, I can't, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many times I use Jesus to get a message. I want uh, inspiration and I want anointing. And I'll, I'll work hard and I'll pray hard for it. And I realize I've gone all week and I haven't really talked to him about anything else. Give it to me. Why? I made preaching. I've done it lots. But it's wrong. It's wrong because he is the omega. Everything is moving towards him. See, the thing that you want the most, you can never have because you want it too much. Have you ever seen that? The thing you want the most, you'll never get it because you want it too much. And any omega point other than Jesus, I submit to you, will ultimately self-destruct. I've seen ministers pine for a church. They get to church and, and they hold on to it so tight that it self-destructs. If you have to be on the stage, you can't afford to be on the stage. Do you remember when Moses, in Exodus chapter 2, there's this, uh, Moses is this, this Hebrew child who was born... Uh, during a time um, of genocide. And his mother tried to save him and what ended up happening is that uh, Pharaoh's daughter found him and he was beautiful to look at and she raised him. And Moses, he's about like 30, 40, almost 40 years old. And over that time, he is aware that his skin is a different color than the Egyptian skin and that that, that, that he looks like a Hebrew and, and he figures out that he is a Hebrew. But he's sitting in this palatial place of leadership. He's had the best training the country could provide, the best education, the highest levels of education, all the while his own people are being exploited and abused and enslaved. He does the math one day and he realizes, you know what, I'm probably the most qualified person to lead this, the, the, these, these Hebrews. Uh, no one else has got my education. And he begins to long to lead the people. And he uses God to try and get that leadership. And then he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And he wants to seize the moment and he's going to take his place as the leader. And so he goes and he defends the Hebrew and he ends up killing the Egyptian. This is the perfect time for a revolt. They should line up behind me. We're out of here. But nobody moves. Nobody even cares. He failed. 
with all of his training, all of his education, nobody's following him. And so he, he leaves and he goes to the wilderness and he lives in epic failure for 40 more years. And after 40 years, he encounters God. I guess for some, it just takes longer than others. After 40 years, he encounters God in the burning bush. And God says, I want you to go lead the nation of Israel. No, <laughs> been there, done that. I'm not very good at that. Uh, I don't talk good. No, you know, I want you to go and lead the people. No, no, no. See, he can't let go of the fact that, that he sucked at it so badly 40 years ago. And for 40 years in the wilderness, all he could think about is what a terrible mess he's made of everything. And finally, God says, you go. He said, you're going to go with me? Yeah, well, I'm going to go with you. Then I'll go. I'll lead. And to his amazement, he's a great leader. To amaze his amazement, he, he's, he's good at it. And God is with him. You see, when he, when he made leadership his end and God his means, he got neither. But when he made God his end and leadership a means of walking with God and honoring God, he got both. How badly do you want that person? Until you put God as your omega point and let him bring that person into your life or let them leave, you're going to hold on to him so tight that you'll self-destruct that relationship. Timothy Keller said this. He said, obeying God when you are weak, obeying God, surrendering to God when you're weak makes room for his strength in your life the rest of the time. Moses demonstrates how a broken person is a much more effective leader than a proud person. He demonstrates how, how a surrendered person uh, is much can host the Holy Spirit, it has much more power than a talented person that's not surrendered. I'm going to invite Clyde and the band to come on up. You know, uh, people have come to me and literally lamented. They said, you know, I, I took my kids to Sunday school. I, 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 I colored inside the lines. I did the right things. I took them to youth group. And when their kids fall off the rails, they go, what, what good did it do? What good did it do? I've had people say, you know what? I, I, I gave in the offering and I served with my money and I served with my time and I've lost my job. What good did all that do? You see, Jesus invites you to serve him. And when you serve Jesus, you just get Jesus. He invites us to serve him, to get him. He's the great treasure. He is the bread of life. He is the well of living water. And true freedom is coming to Jesus just looking for Jesus. I, I, I love my wife. And I'm not after her money. It's her travel benefits that I really look for. You know, she, she does work for WestJet. Um, now, I, love my, I choose my wife. I pursue my wife because I love her. I loved my kids. Not because I got anything. Are you kidding? They cost me a fortune. <laughs> you see, the people who read this letter, this, 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 this revelation that John wrote, they were the most persecuted church ever. 
Domitian was the, 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 the pharaoh of Rome. This is the end of the first century. He did things that are unspeakable. He demanded that the people worship him, that worship Caesar. And because Christians, because of their love for Jesus, because Jesus was enough for them, they couldn't even think about it. And so he drilled holes in their head and poured molten lead. He ripped their limbs apart with horses. He, he put their children on stakes and lit up the night as he put pitch on them and torched them. The people that are reading this letter, this revelation, say, I choose Jesus. And we've come to the place where we go, I, I, I love you, Jesus, but really I want this, 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 and this, this. I want all your promises. I want your hand. And all they had was his face. And so they willingly went to death. They willingly went. And the rest of the world goes, what is wrong with you people? Because they didn't see what the early Christians saw. They saw Jesus. They saw Jesus as the Alpha, the Omega, their orientation point, and the very one that they were giving their lives to and pursuing because he is the end as well. Amen. Actually, I'm going to pray. And then... They're going to sing a song, and then we'll let you go. I tell you what, I had to do a lot of soul searching when I was doing this talk. I've been apologizing <laughs> all week long. Because it's his hand that, I'm, that compels me, not his face. It's the stuff I get. And I said, Lord, why? Why, why wretched soul that I am? So, Father, we come to you today and I want to say again how sorry I am that I I've made you the means and so many other things the end but Jesus you're worthy of my love you're worthy of my service my obedience my everything I choose you, Lord, not because of what you do for me. I choose you because you are the great treasure. You are the only water that, does, that satisfies my soul. And Father, you created me for you as you did for all of us. Give us eyes to see you in a new way, I pray. Give us eyes to see ourselves more accurately, I pray. For your glory and for your end, in Jesus' name, amen.